This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hi, Calvary. Good to be with you today. Can you believe it's the middle of August already? I mean, here we are. The summer is flying right by. School is starting again. Maybe it's even already started for you and your family. And this is, a, a, this is an opportunity, frankly, where I'm excited because I look at all of the potential for this time of year where we can re-engage in ministry opportunities together, maybe entering back into a life group, rejoining a team to serve inside or outside of the walls of the church. There are all kinds of things that we can do together now in this new, fresh season of the fall. But I do wonder, are you really excited about it? What I mean is that we've just come through a pretty rough experience. And in fact, you might even say, but Perry, we're not even through it yet. We, we actually are, might be in the middle of it still. We don't really know. It's true. We have a lot of uncertainty in front of us. Sometimes that uncertainty can actually cause us to disengage or to not re-engage into new opportunities. We might be so disoriented by the fact that we just don't know what to expect that we'd rather just stay on the sidelines for a while rather than jumping into something new. Well, today, as we open up God's word together, we're going to look at the lives of a group of people who were in a very, in some ways, similar situation. Now, the circumstances, the details are different, but they also were coming out of a period that was really difficult and challenging in their own lives, and they were presented with a fresh opportunity to re-engage in God's purposes. We get to look at their lives and examine the kind of decisions that they made, examine the kind of opportunity that they had as well, and to learn from their example, to apply it to our own lives. We're going to be in a couple of books, in fact, today. We're going to be in the book of Ezra and the book of Haggai. So that the transition between those two books is going to be pretty quick. So my suggestion to you is that You should grab your Bible, grab your phone or your device, whatever you're using to read God's word and go ahead and look at Haggai and maybe mark Haggai first because the transition will be pretty quick from Ezra to Haggai. So let me help set up where we're at with Ezra because I'm imagining that maybe Ezra and all of the circumstances is not really fresh in your mind. If you think about the big picture history of Israel, around 1000 BC was the high water mark. King David ruled and reigned inside of Jerusalem. If you know anything about what happened after that, then you would know that King Solomon, his son, succeeded him to the throne. Solomon enjoyed a time of just spectacular, spectacular prosperity. There was gold was plentiful and abundant, and there was all kinds of wealth within Jerusalem itself. But Solomon, as the Bible tells us, loved many foreign women, and those women led his heart astray so that he worshiped other gods, that Solomon chased after idolatry. And because of his unfaithfulness to God, there was judgment that came. Following Solomon's reign, immediately after his lifetime, Israel split into two different countries, a northern country consisting of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel and a southern country consisting of two of those tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So following that time, Israel was split up into two different groups. The northern tribes retained the name Israel. The southern tribes retained the name Judah. And both of those entities, though, were themselves unfaithful to God. So in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came in as a part of God's judgment, and they carried off those northern ten tribes into exile. 
The southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, did not learn from that example. And in fact, they too were carried off into exile in three different invasions by the Babylonian Empire in 605, 597, and 586 BC. So as we pick up the text today, we're entering into a situation where Israel has been in exile. In particular, the Persian Empire has just defeated the Babylonian Empire, and there's a new king named King Caesar. And as we pick up the text now, we're going to read about how King Caesar decided, or rather King Cyrus, decided to handle the situation that he had inherited once he defeated the Babylonian Empire. Here's what the text says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. He uh, struggled with a little bit of pride here as he thinks that he's in charge of all of the world, apparently. But he, he said that God charged him to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts and with costly wares, Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the head of the Babylonian empire, had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Right away, one of the first things we can observe from this passage is a simple fact that we see God's sovereign hand at work in the background. It says right here at the very start, that Cyrus, king of Persia, fulfilled through his actions a word that had already been spoken years before by Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet was used by God to tell God's people what would happen to them in future years. Cyrus undoubtedly thinks that he's acting autonomously, that he's just making his own decisions. But in fact, God is the one who saw this. God is the one who ordained this to happen. It shows that God's sovereignty knows no boundaries. It says here that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And then later on in the passage we just read in verse 5, it says that the Lord also had everyone return, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God is the one who is orchestrating and stirring the people up to accomplish his purposes, which reminds us that God's purposes, they persevere no matter what. No matter what kind of circumstance, no matter what kind of unlikely turn of events might happen, God's purposes still happen. They still occur because God's sovereign hand is at work in the background. So just to refresh our minds of what's going on, to step away from the text, God's people have been in exile for almost 70 years. And now Cyrus, the king who has just defeated the Babylonian empire by a royal decree, has given God's people permission to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 
in the last invasion by the Babylonians in 586 BC, the Babylonians had gone into the city, had destroyed the city and had knocked down Solomon's temple. So Solomon's temple has been in rubble for decades. And now God's people have the opportunity to go back. Incidentally, if we were to go to the British Museum today, you can see a small clay cylinder called appropriately the Cyrus Cylinder that expresses the very kind of words that are expressed here in our text in verses two through four. It's Cyrus's policy that whenever the Persians came to power like this, that they would allow the people who they had captured or previous empires had captured to return to their homeland to rebuild. It was his way of earning their loyalty. So Cyrus enacts this, and now the people are able to return. We're not going to read chapter two, and you can thank me for that, because chapter two two does not read well. It's a list of names, but it's an incredible list of names, even though it's not very entertaining. What we see here is 50,000 people returned from the Persian Empire to Jerusalem to help rebuild. It's 50,000 people who God has preserved throughout this time of exile for a total of almost 70 years. God's sovereign hand is protecting and watching over his people, even in some pretty dire circumstances. So as we jump back into the text, we're going to jump back in in chapter 3 of Ezra. And here's what the text says. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in, this, were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, or Yeshua, you could say, but it's just an alternate spelling of the word of the name Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the people of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. There's a lot going on here. But one thing we should keep in mind is that during the exile of the people of God, they were out of practice from worshiping God according to the law, according to the law that God had given through Moses years before. They didn't have an opportunity to celebrate the appointed feast. They didn't have an opportunity to offer the kind of sacrifices. This was the same period that you might be familiar with through the book of Daniel, where you have figures like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who just by moderately following the Lord in their own context in Babylon, got in a lot of trouble. One case of being thrown into a lion's den or being thrown into a fiery furnace merely for refusing to give up praying to the Lord or on the other case, refusing to bow the knee before an idol. So God's people did not have the opportunity to celebrate at the temple and to practice the worship around the temple that they were accustomed to in previous years. Because they were out of practice, now they are reestablishing those habits. They are realigning their lives with God's law. It's a great display of faithfulness. And there's a great display of unity here as well as they return, gathering as one person to Jerusalem. There is an issue, though. It's hinted at here 
in verse 3, where it says that they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. But it seems to be that their fear of the people around them was what drove them to worship. We might imagine that if 50,000 people showed up on our doorstep, it might be difficult to embrace them and just accept them into our area. That's a lot of people coming back. And we can bet that the people who were there already were not excited about them returning. But that fear that Israel had of those peoples was what helped drive them to worship because they recognize that the God of Israel is the God who protects them. So if we were to read on, which we're going to skip over a couple of verses here, we would see that about the second year after, them, after they had returned into the land, they started to actually rebuild the temple of the Lord. They, as we just read, had been offering sacrifices before that, but now they're going to actually start the construction of the temple itself. So let's read down now in verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments, which is just their clothes that they wore during worship, came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Those are words that Israel had sung earlier when King David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle years before. So there are echoes of what has already happened in Israel's past here, just to show us that Israel's returning to become the people, for again, for a second time, the people who God has created them to be, people who worship him faithfully. So it says this, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. What a beautiful picture. God has taken his people, following judgment, out of exile after about 70 years, and has returned them to the land. It's a beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace. And now the temple is laid and they are, there's celebration. There's great excitement over what is happening, all because God has ordained it through his sovereign hand. This is a time that we might look at and think, wow, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be a part of? Wouldn't that be a great thing for us to experience in our own day? Maybe. Let's keep reading. Verse 12 says this, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Do you catch what's going on here? Those who could remember Solomon's temple are looking at this pile of rubble before them and they're thinking about how there's no way this can ever match the glory of what we experienced in the past. Meanwhile, the younger people who don't have a memory of Solomon's temple are looking at the great opportunity and potential that's in front of them. They're celebrating that. Can you imagine a situation where people would be going through a common experience, but having a very different reaction to it? Can you imagine a situation, say, in a church, where maybe everybody's going through a common experience together, but along generational lines, some people are excited and some people are not so excited. Some people can remember the good old days of how things used to be, 
and other people can look at the potential and the opportunity in front of them, and they're just excited about that. I'm so thankful, for example, in our church that's been around for 130 years, that people have made hard decisions along the way that have been for the good of future generations. I think, for example, of how Calvary back in the 1940s, which I was not around for, but back in the 1940s, the decision was made by people back then that the services should be spoken in English rather than Swedish. I am very grateful for that decision that they made back then because the people in the 1940s recognized that in order to reach future generations, in order to be good for the city of Boulder at the time, they needed to switch to English in their services. That seems like an easy decision for us as we stand here in our day. But you can bet that that was a difficult decision for people who were accustomed to speaking Swedish in those services. It's a reminder to us that we need to be looking forward to the next generation at all times. That we need to keep mindful of the fact that some decisions are really difficult as we think about the worship of God's kingdom in an expanding way. This can be difficult decisions. But back to the story here. The problem that we see here is that now there's an internal division among God's people. And this is a vulnerability. This is a, an issue where they are not united as one person coming to Jerusalem. They're actually divided. And that exposes them. That leaves them open to the potential for even greater problems. Let's keep reading now. In Ezra chapter 4, it says this. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. If you remember, I alluded to this earlier, where those northern ten tribes went into exile by way of the Assyrian Empire. So that happened in 722 BC. And the Assyrians' policy was to mix populations together, to try to dilute the populations in any cultural distinctives. That's the way they gained control over people. So these are people who were likely transplanted into the area of Israel in the middle of the 700s BC. And they're still in the land, or their descendants are in the land, rather, because it's a couple hundred years later, and they are the ones who are approaching the leaders of Israel here. Let's pick it back up in verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is trouble. Look at the words that are used here. Discouraged, afraid, frustrated purpose. Maybe that's where some of us are today as we listen to this. Maybe we're discouraged because of all that's happened this past year with COVID or just with life in general. Maybe you have endured some really difficult circumstances or you know that really difficult circumstances are on the way and maybe you're discouraged by that. Afraid. This is a time where fear has certainly been a part of our lives. As we faced uncertainty, not quite sure what's happening. And even right now, as we stand here today in the middle of August, we're not sure what's going to happen this fall. 
We don't know if COVID's going to come back and slap us in the face again with full force like it did a year ago. We really don't know. And maybe that's a case of fear for us. And certainly, even if we just think about what's going on here at Calvary or what's happened at Calvary in the past year plus, we've seen our purposes frustrated at times. We have a lot of ministry areas that just simply have not been able to operate the way they are accustomed to. We've had good ideas that we've had to put on the shelf and think about for later because we just simply weren't able to execute them this past year. This is a place where trouble can strike us. The greatest danger of being discouraged, the greatest danger of being fearful, the greatest danger of seeing our purposes frustrated is that those things can cause us to disengage from God's work. They can cause us to disengage in a way so that we just sit on the sidelines and wait passively, waiting for things to happen so that we can enter back in at some future point. We don't know when that might be, but when circumstances are better, maybe then we'll get back in the game. That's exactly what we see happening here. You read the last verse of chapter four. It says this, then the work on the house of the God that was in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They disengaged from kingdom work. And in my Bible, I just flipped the page to the first verse of chapter five, and it says this. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. And that's our cue to go ahead and flip ahead to the book of Haggai. So as we enter into the book of Haggai, we're in the second year of King Darius, king of Persia. What that means is it's now 520 BC. If you do the math on all of this, it's about 16 years later since we left Ezra. The work on the temple had stopped 16 years ago. Verse one of Haggai is written with such specificity that we can actually tell the time of the year. Turns out that this is the middle of August in 520 BC. So happy anniversary as we read this. But Haggai is God's mouthpiece going to confront the people and express his message so that they might re-engage. And here's what he says, starting in verse two of Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Just incidentally, let's stop right there. Whenever God calls his people, these people, it's not good. It's like if I make a bad decision at home and my sweet wife has to explain to our children why I made that decision, she might say, your father decided that. She's putting some distance between herself and me. God is putting distance between him and his people when he says, these people Say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse four, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruins? Do you catch what he's saying there? For 16 years, you've said that you didn't have the time, that this wasn't the right time to do this. What are you waiting for? Is, are you waiting for the weather? Maybe if it's a little cooler, then, then we'll re-engage in building the temple. Maybe if the weather warms up, then, we, when the, then we'll re-engage. Maybe we should wait till the kids leave the house. Then we'll have more time, more space. Then we can really engage in the Lord's work. Let's wait till our bank account reaches a healthier level. Then maybe it will be time. Or I'm single. Maybe I'll wait to have a family 
And then my family and I will re-engage in God's work. We'll, we'll enter into some opportunity. The point is that there were 16 years worth of opportunities in front of the people and God's people decided not to take them. Instead, they focused on their own houses. Solomon's temple, the temple that is now in rubble, was said to be paneled from floor to ceiling. The people have had plenty of time to panel their own houses, but not enough time to rebuild God's house. It's not really about a building or a structure, though. What Haggai is getting here is it's a priority. It's the issue of your agenda versus God's agenda. And the people have decided that while they didn't have time for God's agenda, they had plenty of time for their own. And that's what Haggai is calling them out. So let's keep reading. He says now in verse 5, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Haggai's pointing out what goes back to the time of Moses when God gave the law and made a covenant with his people. He set up or established a set of blessings for Israel if they would follow his ways, if they would walk faithfully with him, and curses if they did not. Haggai is pointing out their life. He's saying, observe your life. Look at your life. Think about how things have gone for you. What's going on here is that Israel has been unfaithful now as they're back in the land. They have not rebuilt, and God has frustrated their purposes in order to get their attention. He's trying to get their attention so that they will re-engage in his work. Earlier, the people of the land frustrated the purposes of Israel in building the temple. And now God is frustrating their purposes in every other area of life that they're pursuing. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you runs after or busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and in all their labors. So God, in his mercy, has been frustrating their purposes in order to get their attention and call them back into a life of faithfulness. How will they respond? Let's look at the next chapter, or the next verse, rather. Verse 12. Then the leaders of Israel, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Remember what it said back in Ezra? The people feared the people of the land, but now the people are fearing the Lord. That's a game changer. Anytime we begin to fear the Lord more than we fear people, anytime we're more concerned about what the Lord thinks and says about us than what other people's opinions say, that is a difference maker in our lives. That's who we want to be as a people here at Calvary, people who fear the Lord over any other voices in our lives. It says they fear the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you 
declares the Lord. That's a game changer as well. When we recognize God's presence in our lives, that changes everything. When we realize that we have the king of the universe at our right hand, that shifts our perspective entirely when we recognize who is with us. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Those are the same words that were used back at the start of Ezra. That God is stirring up his people again for a new work, a new opportunity to be faithful, and a new display of his mercy. It says, as they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So about a month goes by as they are, again, realigning their lives toward faithfulness with God. About a month goes by and Haggai comes back on the scene. We're back at the foundation of the temple here in chapter two. And here's what he has to tell these people as they're working. It says this in verse three. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your sight? It's like salt in the wound. Haggai's coming back just a month later. We can expect that some progress has been made on the temple foundation and on the building itself, but not a lot. It still must look fairly unimpressive. And Haggai actually draws their attention to that. He actually says, look, doesn't it look like nothing to you? Where's he going to go from there? Verse four, yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Haggai is calling them, rather God is calling them through Haggai to re-engage, to be strong, to have confidence that he is present with them. He's telling them that the work that they are doing is work being done in his very presence. God is near. He sees what they're doing. Verse six says this, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And catch this in verse nine, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What an amazing picture of the fact that God's presence is with them, but that God's purposes are for an even greater glory than the glory that they once experienced back in Solomon's day. That's an important, even essential thing for us to keep in mind, that God's purposes are always expanding in a greater glory for a greater purpose. In fact, there are a couple spots in the Old Testament speaking of glory being filling, filling temples. There's a spot in the prophet Habakkuk and in Isaiah where it says that one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Every square inch of our planet will one day be full of the knowledge of God's glory. 
God's glory is ever expanding and our faithfulness to his plans comes from a renewed vision of his presence with us and his ever extending purposes for us and his kingdom. This is something that we need to have as a renewed vision as we think about our place right now at this time entering into the fall. That God's glory is not something that is just flatlined or it's not even declining, but it's actually increasing. It's good for us to remember the past. It's good for us to celebrate the past wherever we can, but we cannot live in the past. God is calling us into a new day, into new opportunities of even ever-increasing glory. There's a children's book that has a great quote that I'd like to share with you. It's The Little Prince. And the author there says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. My prayer is that we would long for the endless immensity of God's kingdom, his ever-advancing, ever-expanding kingdom work that is around us and that he calls us to join him in participating in. That's what we have in front of us right now, a fresh opportunity, a new day to re-engage. How was the temple somehow going to have a greater glory? Because that is the same temple that Jesus would live around, that he would teach around, that he would perform miracles by. It's the same temple that Jesus would even one day replace on a cross and in an empty tomb. It's an ever-increasing glory that God has called us to be a part of. In fact, we might sum all of this up in some of Jesus's most famous words that he says in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you have called us to be a part of your purposes, your ever-increasing glory, and the majesty of your ever-expanding, advancing kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would stir us up the same way you stirred up your people back in these pages. Father, I pray that what was true back then would be true for us today in 2021, that we would be a people who live faithfully with a renewed vision for what you have in store for us. God, we know that it requires your presence with us. So Father, I pray you'd give us confidence that you are with us, that you are near. And Father, that we go in your strength and your power. So Lord, we pray all of this, asking you to move in us, in your powerful name, the name of Jesus, amen.